You don't have to say it out loud, but is there perhaps a particular sin that you find yourself on a somewhat regular basis giving way to? Uh, Bob Newhart has a sketch where he's a therapist. Uh, per perhaps you've seen it. Uh, a lady comes to him who is petrified and terrified of being buried alive in a box. So uh, she comes to him, and when she first comes to him, Newhart explains to her the billing process. He says, each session is only $5, and they're only five minutes long. And, and oh, by the way, he says, I don't make change. She's like, great. She's very pleased to hear this. So at Newhart's prompting, she then begins to tell him how she's absolutely petrified of being buried alive in a box and how this fear is ruining her life. She can't go under tunnels. She can't go into an elevator. In fact, she can't even stay in her home. She says anything boxy terrifies her. Well, after carefully listening to what the woman has to say, he then leans over his desk and he says, okay, I'm going to share with you two words. And I want you to listen very carefully to these two words. And I want you to take these two words, take them with you out of this office and incorporate them into your life. Woman, she gets out a pen and paper. She, she leans over and she's eager to write them down. And, and, and do you remember what, what Bob Newhart says? He actually yells it at her. He says, stop it. <laughs> and he says, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it. He yells at her. <laughs> and the woman, she's taken back by this, right? And after a long pause, she kind of leans forward and she says, so you're telling me just to stop it. <laughs> to which Newhart says, there you go. <laughs> Have you seen that before? New Newhart. Newhart is so great. But, man, if only change were that simple, right? I mean, could you imagine how much easier parenting would be if that worked? <laughs> could, could you imagine how much easier the Christian life would be if that worked? If all that was required for us is to say, stop it, and you would change? However, my experience personally uh, and my experience as both a pastor and a parent is that simply telling someone to stop it isn't enough to bring about change. I mean, just think for a moment about your own life. In fact, let me go back to the question we started with. You don't have to say it out loud. But is there a particular sin, a besetting sin that you regularly give way to? Maybe anger or pride? Perhaps lust or worry? Maybe lying, selfishness or bitterness? Is there, is there just a particular sin you are prone to give way to? 
my guess is you know that it's wrong. The problem isn't a lack of knowledge, is it? So why don't you just stop it? Or stop it, stop it, stop it, like Newhart would say. I mean, seriously, Christian, why don't you just stop lying? Why don't you just stop worrying? Why don't you just stop giving way to bitterness or lust or what have you? Let me ask it in this way. As Christians, why do we often choose to live for ourselves rather than Christ? Because really, at the end of the day, all those sins I just listed, they are just various expressions of living for yourself. Yet the Bible is really clear that those who have been saved by Jesus Christ, we are called to live for Christ in each and every moment of our day. Yet oftentimes we do not. I know I don't. Rather, we're prone to live for ourselves, our wants, our wishes, our desires. Why is that? And why is simply telling ourselves, stop it, not enough? Well, I believe our passage this morning answers those very questions for us. Turn with me, if you would, to Revelation chapter 4. Last month, artist Ed Sheeran released a new song called Visiting Hours. I don't know, maybe you've heard it already playing on the radio. Uh, if, you, if you have, then you know that's quite a moving song, very emotional. You see, Ed Sheeran wrote that song as a tribute to a mentor of his who recently died. And the song, we were listening to it not too long ago, my wife was keen to point out, he employs every musical technique to well up the emotions as you hear the song. And I have the, the lyrics here on the screen. Listen to what, to what Ed sings. He says, I wish that heaven had visiting hours. And this is speaking of his friend. So I could just swing by and ask your advice. What would you do in my situation? I haven't a clue how I'd even raise them. What would you do? Because you always do what's right. I wish that heaven had visiting hours. And, and I think you, we all understand the sentiment of the song, don't we, right? Ed wishes that he could just peek into heaven, there'd be visiting hours so he could, he could get the counsel he really wants and needs, right? Well, in our text this morning, we get exactly that. You see, in Revelation chapter 4, we are able to accompany the Apostle John as he is given entrance into heaven. And as we accompany John, we discover the answer to the questions as to 
why we so often choose to live for ourselves rather than Christ and why simply telling us, stop it, isn't enough to change. And I could think of no better text for us to start our 13th year as a church in this passage. Last Sunday, we celebrated our 13th anniversary. Today is week one of us being a teenager as a church, right? Yeah, woohoo is right. <laughs> and so I thought it was appropriate. I just wanted to take a break. We're going to jump back into 2 Samuel next Sunday. But I could think of no better text than this one, because here's my prayer at church. My prayer for us as a church that the truth found in this text would be not only our guiding light for this year, but then for all the years to come. So if you haven't already, turn with me there to Revelation chapter 4. That's uh, page 1030 if you need one of those uh, paperback Bibles in the seat in front of you. And that before we dive in, I just need to say a couple quick things to kind of set the context and so forth. I... It's going to be helpful if I remind you that as we study the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation is a picture book, not a puzzle book. Right? You know the difference, right? A puzzle book is meant to confuse you with tricks and riddles, right? A picture book, on the other hand, is meant to grab your imagination. And that's what the book of Revelation is. This book was not written to confuse or perplex us but to capture our imaginations with vivid images that can communicate sound and biblical truth so as to bolster our faith on towards godly living. Indeed, that's what a revelation is. A revelation is a vision. <laughs> In fact, the book of Revelation begins with these words, the revelation of Jesus Christ. As we're about to see, Jesus Christ is both the one who is revealed and the revealer. And if you're keeping score at home, we discover that over 52 times in the book of Revelation, we find John saying, and then I saw, and then I saw, and then I saw. So let's see what John saw during his visiting hours. As he's got into heaven. Follow along with me in your copy of God's word as I read chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. John writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, after this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Let's just pause here for a moment. Notice how often John uses the phrase, and this is important, had the appearance of. John does not say God is, but rather God has the appearance of. The God on the throne that John sees is so glorious, 
so magnificent he cannot be described in human terms. His best comparison is to priceless gems that radiate with beauty. So he goes into the throne room and he's, he's overwhelmed. He's like, he had the appearance of this. It's too glorious to describe in human terms. This is the best I can do, John says. But then notice what we also see here about heaven and God. We're going to discover here that he's absolute in power. He's not only glorious in, in sight, but he's absolute in power. Look at verses 4 and 8. He says, around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. This is a way of saying the Holy Spirit and the number seven indicating that it's perfect and complete. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, notice these majestic, glorious beings, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. They're saying they see everything. They know everything. They got eyes all around them. And notice what they do. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is is to come. How many of you remember that old TV show, Get Smart? You guys remember those? Okay, very good. This will connect, okay? Do, do you remember how each episode began and ended? It, it was a scene of Maxwell Smart walking through door after door after door, right? Remember this? Here's the point. The point being, there wasn't easy access to the room that he was getting to. Well, notice the same is true here in heaven, meaning there's no easy access to God's throne in heaven. Notice how cluttered it is around the throne. For, for notice, what surrounds the, the throne? Number one, magnificent beings, right? You have 24 elders. Now, I understand these to be high-ranking angels, why do I think that? I think that because as the rest of the book of Revelation, as you read it, the book of Revelation makes a distinction between these elders and the redeemed people of God. So, so I think they're high-ranking angels. But that's not all who's around the throne, is there? There's also how many living creatures? Four. And these are majestic, awe-inspiring, majestic beings. They lead in worship, notice. 
And as we see later in the book, they initiate God's judgment. And what I want you to see, this is really important, what is often overlooked is that those who occupy space around God's throne, they are glorious in their own right. They're majestic and awesome in their own right. I mean, just look at their descriptions, right? This is to say the 24 elders and the four living creatures, you know what they are? They're creatures of authority. They are greater than any human being. In the past, they have silenced kings and shut the mouths of lions. These are the ones who carry out God's will. And these high creatures of authority, glorious, they worship God day and night. And you know what the point that John is driving home as he sees this? You know what the point is? If the throne of God is surrounded by such magnificent creatures of authority, then what must God be like? You know what the answer is? Absolute authority. Now that's what John sees. Now notice what he also hears. What does verse 5 state? Have your eyes fall there. He sees flashes of lightning, and then he hears what? Peals and rumbles of what? So what, what you have to understand, in the age before the nuclear holocaust, the most perfect demonstration of power, I mean of frightening power, were the forces of nature unleashed. And that's what we have here. So, so God is absolute in authority. And he's frightening in holiness. Unless we have any doubt about this, uh, notice what we see the 24 elders and the glorious beings doing in the following verses. Look at verses 9 through 11. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, and this is important, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Worthy are you, O God. You know, some people, and I have to admit, I thought this as well. Some people sigh at the thought of worshiping God in heaven. It's just going to be a snooze fest. I mean, yeah, maybe it's going to be great for a couple of minutes, but man, it's then going to be boring, right? Like it's going to be drudgery. Listen, I'm telling you, please hear me. You are not going to be bored worshiping God in heaven. I promise you that. In fact, listen to me. You're going to be so captivated, so taken back by his majesty and glory that you won't want to do anything else but worship him. Please hear me. For your joy. 
I mean, just think about it. When you see or you hear, or let's taste. When you taste something wonderful, I love steak, so that's what I'm going to use here. You taste a delicious steak, right? Your enjoyment of that thing is incomplete without praise. When you're taken back by tasting a great steak, what do you do? You praise it by saying, oh, this is so good. And you know why you do that? To complete your joy. Your joy is incomplete without that praise. Friend, so it will be with God in heaven, except like a bazillion times more so. You'll be so captured by his brilliant glory that you will want to praise him for your joy and your pleasure. Now, Revelation chapter 4 is awesome. <laughs> Yet in many ways, as awesome as it is, one of its chief functions really is to just simply set up this, the stage for what's about to take place in chapter 5. For in chapter 5, you know what we see? We see a drama. Indeed, here in the throne room of God, the most important drama of all time takes place. And this drama, please hear me, it connects to your life today and right now. Notice what happens. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 5. John writes, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. In, in Charles Dickens' novel, A Christmas Carol, the first ghost, the ghost of Christmas past, he takes Scrooge on a journey to his childhood home. Do you remember this? However, at first, Scrooge, he doesn't know where he's going. Yet when they finally arrive to his childhood home, Scrooge he begins to recognize some things, right? And then it dawns on him. He realizes he's not watching someone else's life. No, he's watching an actual event that impacts his life, right? Well, that's what's happening to John in this verse. And that's what's happening to us as well. For you see, Christian, please hear me. Your life, your future, your salvation is impacted by the scroll that John sees in the right hand of Almighty God. And what is this scroll? Well, the fact that it is written on the inside and the back, it indicates that it's a legal document. And as the rest of the book of Revelation makes clear, this scroll represents the fullness of God's purposes for blessing and judgment. All of God's plans for history, salvation, redemption, it's all in this scroll. There is not a more important scroll in all the world. In this book is found God's plan to overthrow sin and evil and death, to bring about final glorification, the new heavens and the new earth. All of God's purposes for history, including yours, friend, are contained in this book. And notice, in order to enact what's in this book, the seals, and how many are there? They need to be broken. 
So unless these seals are broken, God's plans for all history will not come to pass. Thus, a challenge, a call is issued. Look in verse 2. John writes, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Now consider for a moment what this angel is actually asking. He's asking that someone would make their way through the four living creatures, the 24 elders, the sea of glass, approaching this glorious, awesome God on the throne and go up to the throne and to take that scroll out of the hand of Almighty God and to not only take it, but then bust open the seals to bring about God's saving plans and purposes for all of history. You, you cannot, cannot find a larger, more significant challenge than this. This is an incredible request. And notice what the angel finds. Look at verses 3 and 4. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Just, just picture the scene with me. There is a mighty angel and his voice fills the heaven and the earth with the mighty proclamation, who is worthy? Who is worthy to open the scroll? I mean, I imagine it's a proclamation so loud, the base of his voice would resonate in your body. This loud proclamation. But then notice, this booming proclamation is followed by a deafening silence. Why? Because no one is worthy. No one was found worthy to open the scroll in heaven, on earth, or under the earth. Now wait just a moment. No one was found worthy on earth I mean, there have been some pretty incredible people that have trod this earth. I mean, think of, think of who we've been studying in 2 Samuel. Think of King David. Surely he would be worthy to open a scroll. Or, or, or maybe the prophet Daniel. Or, or what about Elijah or Elisha? Sure, I mean, surely one of them could open the scroll, right? Or, or what about one of the apostles? What about the apostle Paul? Or what about some of the people that the author of Hebrews talks about in chapter 11? People whom the text says that the world was not worthy of. Well, may, surely they're worthy then 
to open a scroll? John says, no. No one on earth was found worthy. Okay, no one on earth. But what about heaven? I mean, already in chapter 4, we've seen some pretty incredible creatures, haven't we? I mean, what about one of the 24 elders? I mean, they're sitting on their own thrones with their own crowns for crying out loud. Surely one of them would be able and worthy to open up the scroll. But what about one of the four living creatures? They are glorious beings in their own right. Surely one of them is worthy, right? No. No one in heaven or under the earth is able to open the scroll. So John weeps. The silence of heaven is broken by the sound of John weeping. In verse 4, notice what verse 4 says. He weeps loudly. And friend, please hear me, so should we. Friend, if the scroll isn't opened, any hope you have for redemption will not come to pass. Sin and death will not ultimately be destroyed. Evil will not be defeated. There will be no resurrected body. There will be no new heavens and new earth. So John weeps. And he weeps because he knows his life depends on that scroll being opened. And so does yours. We are not mere spectators here, friends. So listen, weep with John. Let this sink in. You know, uh, several months ago, I told you about a man who had a Bitcoin account worth $220 million dollars yet he couldn't access it because he forgot the password. Remember? And he only had a certain number of tries left, and if he tried two more times and didn't get it, he was locked out from that $220 million for forever. Do you remember this? Do you remember your response when I told you this story? You're like, oh, how terrible. That pales in comparison. To this scroll not being opened. So John weeps. Yet look at what happens next in verses 5 and 7. How many begin back in verse 4? He says, And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went, listen to this, and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Praise God. 
There is one who is worthy to take the scroll, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Christ and Christ alone is able to open the scroll and fulfill God's plan, ultimate plan for salvation and judgment. Yet notice this. John is told that the lion from the tribe of Judah has overcome. Yet when John actually looks to see who the conqueror is, what does he see? He does not see a lion, but rather he says, sees a what? A lamb as if what? Slain. Why is Jesus the only one who can come into the presence of a holy God and open the scroll? Why is he alone worthy to break the seals? Because, friend, he has overcome through his death and resurrection. And how did the lion overcome? By dying on a cross to purchase for God with his blood people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And friend, please hear me. This is the good news of Scripture. This is the good news of the Bible. The good news of Scripture is that Christ died to save sinners. He lived the perfect life we failed to live. Then he died the death we are owed for our sin. Then three days later, praise the Lord, he rose from the dead. Jesus overcame sin and death. This is why John describes Jesus as the lamb as though it had been slain. Why? To signify that it had died, but now come back to life. Friend, please hear me. I hope this narrative is making this very clear. You cannot save yourself. Your sin is too great and your righteousness is way too weak. You not only need forgiveness for your sin, but you need a perfect righteousness, and that is precisely what God gives you in Jesus Christ. Friend, have you put your faith in Christ alone for your salvation? And here's an appropriate point for me just to pause and tell you this, because friend, listen to me. You can either go to hell clinging to your own righteousness, or you can go to heaven receiving the perfect righteousness of Jesus by faith alone. Turn from trusting in yourself and trust in the only one who is worthy. In fact, notice the response of those in heaven by this, what would you consider an audacious act to walk up to the God's throne and to grab the scroll. Look at what we see in verses 8 and following. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense with the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. And notice how often they use the word worthy. And they said, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by the, your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language, people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne 
and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And notice, the one on the throne is approvingly silent. There's a new song because the object of worship is the lamb who was slain. In verse 13, and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped and we all say, Amen and amen. Tell me, class, in response to Jesus taking the scroll, what do we see everyone in heaven doing? They're worshiping Christ. And what are they saying? Worthy. Worthy is the Lamb. And you know what these chapters are saying to us? in bright, big, neon lettering. These two chapters are shouting to us this life-transforming truth, and that is this. Jesus alone is worthy of your full devotion. Jesus alone is worthy of your full devotion. Notice how the inhabitants of heaven repeatedly declare this throughout the chapter. That Christ is worthy to receive honor and praise. And this is what I want you to, to, to hear me when I say this. Christ alone is worthy to receive honor and praise. And friend, that includes praise and honor from you. Jesus is worthy to receive honor from you. And you know what that means on the street level? You live for him rather than yourself. So let's go back to the original question I asked. Why is it that we so often choose to live for ourselves rather than Christ? And you know what the answer is? Because we don't believe Christ is worth it. Underneath it all, the reason why we choose to live for ourselves is because we believe our wants, wishes, and desires are worthy of our allegiance more than the only one who is able to take the scroll and to open its seals. Indeed, friend, the reason why you and I live for ourselves or why you live for yourself in your marriage, at school, at work, the reason why you lie, give way to worry and lust, or whatever that besetting sin might be, is because underneath it all, you believe that living for yourself, your wants, your wishes, your desires, is more worthy of your allegiance than Christ. Yet notice how this text is going out of its way to prove to you that Christ alone 
is worthy of your complete devotion and worship. And friend, that is to be the chief motivation for why we lift him, because he is worthy. And I cannot overstate, I cannot overstate how important it is that we embrace this truth. So let me just, um, as, as Clint reminded us, we're all counselors. So let me just put on a counseling hat here for a moment. So, so often in Christian circles, and this is, there is good intent and there's even truth to this, but so often you will hear that the, the solution to overcoming that besetting sin, right, that besetting sin in your life is to just bask in how much God loves you. The, the reason why you give way to these besetting sins is because you just don't know how much God loves you. God does love you, that's true. But friends, such counsel is incomplete and insufficient. And I want to tell you why. Take careful note. What do we see the residents of heaven doing? As a good friend of mine is fond of saying, he says, there's no selfies in heaven. We don't see the residents in heaven saying, yay, look at how much God loves me. Do you see it? The residents in heaven are not basking in how much God loves them, are they? No, rather, what are they? They are in awe of the glory and the majesty and the might and the supremacy of Christ. If the residents in heaven are being satisfied in the worth of God, how much more should that be our chief motivation for us here and now? And I, and I need to confess to you that passages such as these and other large swaths of the New Testament have really refined my thinking when walking side by side, when counseling one another's. The question to ask is not, though this question does have merit in certain contexts, the chief question to ask is not, where do I find my value, worth, and significance? That's, that's not the best question. And you know why? Because the answer to that question terminates in self. Right? Do I feel good about myself because of my job or because God loves me? Do I feel good about myself because I'm in a romantic relationship or because God loves me? Notice, where is the focus in each of those scenarios? Me. And this can be a covert way of still being self-absorbed. I feel good about myself either because my job makes me feel good or maybe at times God makes me feel good. Either way, I'm still focused on myself. Now, please hear me. I, I need you to really listen carefully. Is it true that God loves us? Yes, yes. And for that, we rejoice. Praise Him. He loves us with an incredible love, and we should rejoice in that. Yet, Christian, when we're counseling one another, we can't stop there. That's not the whole counsel of God. Christ loves you, gave His life for you, and He is worthy 
of your complete devotion. Our affections are not to terminate in thinking about how precious we are to God, but how majestic and glorious He is. Does that make sense? This is why a better question when counseling our hearts would be not where do I find my value and worth, but rather who am I living for? Am I living for myself? Or am I living for the only one who's worthy of my complete devotion? So, so to close, what I want to do, and I do mean this, to close, okay? What I want to do is I just want to give you three statements from this passage that demonstrate why Jesus is worthy of your full devotion more than yourself. Because, friend, i got to tell you, at the end of the day, this is what it boils down to. Do I count myself as worthy of full devotion and live for myself? Or do I count Christ as worthy of my full devotion and live for him? And I want to give you three statements derived from this text which I think help further that. And the first is this. Notice, Jesus is worthy of your full devotion because he rules over history. I mean, this is, this is the overarching point of these two chapters. But it's particularly in verse 7 when we see Jesus take the scroll. And I, and I want to just make another observation here. I want you to notice how this chapter is really making a profound biblical truth that cannot be overemphasized. You know what that is? Consider this. This text is teaching that apart from the person and work of Jesus Christ, history has no purpose. <laughs> this is why it's okay to be called a Jesus freak. Because we are. Because the Bible teaches without the person and work of Jesus Christ, history has no purpose. I mean, that's the whole point of Jesus being worthy to open the scroll. And here's what I just want to press into our hearts. It is Jesus and Jesus alone who can fulfill and bring all of God's purposes to pass. And I'm going to tell you, Faith, you will not find a more Christ-exalting text than this. A governor might think that he rules over a state. A president might think that he rules over a nation. But it is Christ alone who rules over them all and the entirety of history. You want to be on the wrong side of history? Live for yourself. You want to be on the right side of history? Live for the one who is worthy of your full devotion, the Lord Jesus Christ. Why would you not give your allegiance to the one who is the supreme ruler? Second, Jesus knows all things. Look again at the description of Jesus in verse 6. Notice, Jesus is described as having seven what? Eyes and something else. Horns. In, in biblical imagery, the horn is a picture of strength. Think of Daniel, right? The book of Daniel. It is often used to represent powerful kings and nations. Thus, when he's describing Jesus with this horn, he's saying he's strong and mighty and powerful. But then also the lamb has seven eyes. And the fact that these seven eyes are identified with God's seven spirits 
shows that the Lamb's knowledge extends through all the earth. This is to say, Jesus knows all things, including every detail of your life. Do you know all things? Do you know half the stuff? (laughs) (laughs) Then why live for yourself when you can live for the one who knows all things? Indeed, let me just press in here. Why would I continue to lean on my own understanding instead of submitting to the counsel and commands of God's word? And then lastly, the third statement, Jesus is worthy of your full devotion because he redeems sinners, amen? You know what's so sad about that Ed Sheeran song, Visiting Hours? You know what's sad? It isn't the fact that he's mourning the death of a good friend and mentor. You know what's so sad? It's that what Ed really wants in that song is not the God of heaven, but simply time with his friend. Friend, what makes heaven great are not the residents, but the ruler. And we'll never come to find the ruler worthy of our complete devotion until we first have an accurate view of our sin. Friend, your sin, that that besetting sin that we talked about at the beginning of this sermon, That sin deserves judgment. My sin deserves judgment. Indeed, God owes us judgment for our sin. Yet that is not what God has given us in Christ, amen? No, the judgment we deserve has been paid by Christ on the cross. This is why Jesus was slain, so that sinful people like you and me could be redeemed, undeserving of his love and grace. So let me ask, I mean, think about what more could Jesus possibly do to prove to you that he's worthy for you to live for him? Faith, as we embark on our 13th year as a church, my prayer is that we would see Jesus for who he truly is. The all-sufficient king who is worthy of our full devotion in each and every moment of our lives, when I'm interacting with my spouse, when I'm interacting with my kids, when I'm at the office, my first thought, my first question is, how can I live for him rather than myself? Let's be that kind of teenager. Amen? Let's pray.